Let's turn together, please, to Acts chapter 13. So, um, God has probably blessed me, and in some ways, sometimes it feels like has, has given me a little bit of a curse that whenever I step into a room, I can kind of feel mood. Any of you guys have that blessing and curse? A couple of you do, I know. Um, so today, it feels like we're a little bit on pins and needles, like, you know, what, what's God doing in our church? What's the future hold? So I think there's a little bit of anxiety there. Um, and also, if you're like my family, we are wiped out right now, and we're like two months into school, and we're sucking wind going into the holidays. So... Um, so I feel that this morning, and so let me say something to you that I said to one of, our, one of the people in our church family the other night who's going through a trial. And, and I'm saying this to me as much as anybody else, because I'm anxious this morning. And, and that is, we don't have anything to be afraid of. We don't. What has God ever done on behalf of his people to make us think that we have to be scared. Now, it's part of the human condition to be scared, to be anxious, to, to take up our lives and try to control them. But, but my beloved, my, my friends, we don't have to be scared of anything. We don't have to be scared of church mergers. We don't have to be scared when our relationships aren't all that we want them to be. We don't have to be scared when our kids aren't well. We don't have to be scared of cancer. We don't have to be scared of tomorrow. We don't have to be scared. Now, that's hard in the here and now because I think all of us would testify, we, we would say that in the long run, it's all going to work out. We all believe that, right? In the long run, we know God wins and it all works out. But if the Bible that we all say we believe, if the Bible that we say we believe and our personal experience as God's people, and our collective experience as God's people in this church, if all of that is true and is a record of what God will do in the future, then we can trust Him. And so I say to all of you who are anxious because of church stuff, our family stuff, our health stuff, you don't have to be afraid. And our lives are nothing, are they not? They're nothing if they are not God's way of exposing just how freaked out a lot of us are most of the time. There's a few of you out there who are just kind of like this all the time, but only like three of you, right? Most of you are like me. And so I just want to say to you before we get into God's Word today, which is going to demonstrate God's sovereignty to us, that you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be worried. Our God does all things well, and He loves us. And so I want you to remember this, maybe jot this down so that it can become your very appropriate Christian mantra, okay? Christian mantra. My God is limitless in power, statement number one. My God is limitless in love. And then third statement, all of His power and all of His love, limitless power, limitless love, are leveraged on my behalf. That's true. 
Tell yourself that. Preach the truth to yourself. So again, my God is limitless in power. My God is limitless in love. And his limitless power and his limitless love are leveraged on my behalf all of the time. That's true. So in light of that, let's turn to Acts chapter 13. I'm going to read for us today from verses 44 through 52. And so now that we have all gotten to the point where we're never going to be scared again, we can hear the word, right? Okay. This is God's word once more. The next Sabbath, Luke records for us, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That is one of the most subtle and hopeful verses in all the Bible. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They leave Antioch, the church where they were serving functionally as elders, a good argument for a plurality of eldership within a church. The Holy Spirit sets, in some ways, the best of them apart to go on this missionary journey, a journey that would cause them to go into hostile places and to, in many ways, lay their lives down for the sake of the gospel. They initially go to Cyprus, where they see a little bit of fruit, and now they come to another Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Their, their sending church, so to speak, was in Syrian Antioch. But now they are in Pisidian Antioch, a church, a city rather, that was largely Gentile, but that had a, a strong Jewish minority. And as became Paul's custom, they went to the synagogue first to talk about Jesus, that he was the expected Messiah, and that through his death, burial, and resurrection had provided good news. Good news to overcome the bad news. The bad news being that all of us, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, are under condemnation. But a second Adam has come, Jesus Christ And he offers to us eternal life. So Paul, in his first missionary journey, Luke records for us Paul's sermon here in Pisidian Antioch to the synagogue. And as we finished up with last time, by and large, the response to Paul was was pretty good. But Paul also knew that because of the way that he himself had reacted to the gospel when he first heard it, that people would scoff at it, that people would reject it. And so there's always these two responses to the gospel. 
There's tension in our passage for today. There's tension between sin and grace. There's tension between humanity and God. Between human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. And this short passage brings that out for us. So I want to give you two basic truths that are clear to us from this passage that we can tuck away and use in our worship. The first is, God providentially directs our steps. Implication, let us walk in obedient faith. We saw that in verses 13 through 15. In verses 16 through 25, we saw that God always keeps His promises despite what our eyes tell us. Implication, let us trust Him in the waiting. Verses 26 through 37, we found this truth. God's promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Implication, let us find our hope in Him alone. Then lastly, we saw from our last time together, God delights in forgiving sinful people. How should we respond? Let us join Him on His rescue mission. Here are our two principles for today. First, our neighbors must receive Christ by faith. Only God can overcome belief. So there's tension, number one. So two basic principles that are going to flow out of verses 44 through 52. The first one is this. Our neighbors must receive Christ by faith. If they don't, they will remain under condemnation. What can overcome their unbelief? Only God can. So Paul preaches in the synagogue. Some receive the word of the gospel with joy... Some don't. So in verse 44, what happens as a result of their previous teaching a week before? Almost the whole city, of the city in Antioch, gets together to hear what's going on. Not just people who are regular attenders in the synagogue, but word begins to spread. And what this guy is doing, this, this foreigner is coming in and saying... That salvation is possible in the name of this Jewish person that this guy proclaims to be the Messiah. So people want to come out and hear this. But notice in verse 45 when the Jews, and this probably means the Jewish leaders of the synagogue, when they see the result, when they see what begins to happen through Paul's preaching, they're jealous. And notice because of their jealousy, they begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul, even reviling him. This word quite literally means that they, they blasphemed Paul. On the one hand, that isn't that big of an issue because Paul isn't God, but, but actually if it is, if you think about it, because they're not really reviling Paul, they're reviling the Lord that he represents This means that when anybody speaks against the message that we give them, the good news that we give them, they're not really rejecting us so much, they're they're rejecting the Lord Jesus. So what Paul is telling the city, 
is that you must trust Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, we will all remain in unbelief. Paul is very clear about this elsewhere in his writings. Places like Ephesians chapter 2. We, left to ourselves, are dead and our trespasses and sin. What's our identity? We are children of wrath. We are sons and daughters of disobedience. According to Paul in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. We have a fundamental problem, and that is this. We are sinful, and we will never, ever, and there are zero exceptions to this in human history, we will never come to God of our own accord. But God in His mercy overcomes our unbelief by His sovereign grace. You see people that are responding to this message of the gospel. Intrigue is building, and some people turn to the faith. You see this in verse 48. Not so much the Jews, but the Gentiles hear Paul's message of good news, and they rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. Why? Again, this subtle statement that Luke records at the end of verse 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There is really no way to get around this word appointed. This means that God in His mercy decided that He would rescue some of the fallen race. Paul did not know who those people were. And so we would say that he preached the good news indiscriminately. For you younger people, that means that he didn't make exceptions to whom he gave the good news. He gave it to everybody who would listen. And that's our experience too, right? When it really comes down to it, we do not know who will respond to the good news. But some will. Why? Because God intervenes. The wonder of the good news is that God saw fit to rescue anyone. What do we deserve for our willful rebellion? And notice how Paul makes it clear that this is willful rebellion. People willfully reject the gospel. Verse 46. Paul basically says, you were privileged. You Jews were privileged to receive the good news. From your people came the covenants. You are the ones who are of the patriarchs, the fathers. But what did they do to it? They thrust it aside. This is a forceful word in the original language. They shoved it aside. They did not want it. For though now we embrace the gospel as good news, if you think about it, the gospel has an edge to it. The gospel is saying to lost humanity, there is nothing that you can do to rescue yourselves. Now, I need to say to you, and please be careful about this, we should not, by our demeanor, add offense to the gospel. And sometimes we have done that, and we certainly know people who do that. 
who by their snarky, superior, elitist demeanor act like they're better than the lost people around them, forgetting all the while that was only by sheer grace that they were rescued anyway. So let us not add offense to the gospel by our demeanor. However, we have to have enough courage to speak the word of Christ, knowing full well that some will indeed thrust it aside. This is really interesting as you read Paul's letter to the Roman church in chapter 1. He makes it very clear that in God's general revelation to humanity, humanity has suppressed the truth. They've tried to shove it down. They don't want to deal with a sovereign God to whom they are responsible. But that's not just for pagans, right? In some ways, perhaps, religious people are are more guilty of this. For we often turn to rules and, and law as our means of salvation, and it's intoxicating. Law is intoxicating. Because if we think we can just keep all the right rules, checking all the right boxes, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, that somehow we have something to contribute. And our self-righteousness and our pride runs very, very deep. And if our process of sanctification is anything, our our, our walk with Christ is anything, it's this. It's a revealing of of just how self-righteous we still are. Only the gospel can overcome this. Only God, through the gospel, can overcome this. Our neighbors must receive Christ by faith. If they don't, They will be lost for eternity. Only God can overcome belief. Let's look quickly, please, at Luke chapter 21. Paul and Barnabas experienced persecution for what they taught. But they should not have been surprised. Jesus told us it would be the case. Jesus says to his disciples, not long before he would be arrested and crucified, Luke chapter 21, verse 10, he says to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Is Jesus speaking out of both sides of his mouth? You will die, but you won't. He he means two different deaths. The second of which is, is far more menacing, and it's eternal. He's saying that you may lose your life in this present world, but I will rescue you to life everlasting. And if they persecuted him, and they did, we should not be surprised that we might be persecuted too. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't mean this to be rhetorical. I'd like you to interact a little bit. How many of you are scared 
at least sometimes to open your mouth and proclaim the good news. I am, I, I am double hands up right there with you. It's not easy, right? It's not natural. It's natural to talk to your neighbors about the weather. And we say the most like obvious things, right? Almost the kind of obvious things that when we walk away, we think, that was the dumbest thing I've ever said. Like, you know, the neighbor will come out to their end of the driveway and we'll come to ours and, and we say something like this. It's like 50 degrees outside and we say, cold, isn't it? Because we have nothing else to say sometimes. Or Buckeyes didn't play very good defense in their secondary today, right? Like most obvious thing ever. We're, that's where we go. We, we, we go to, to weather. We go to football. When we know people a little bit better, we talk about our kids. That's like safe zone. That's Switzerland for us. How are the kids? They're fine. They're busy. Blah, blah, blah. That stuff's easy to talk about. And nobody probably is going to think you're super weird if you talk about how Ohio winters are always gray. It's safe. It's more difficult to, to bring up your faith. You're worried what they will think about you. You're worried of the cost of it. Maybe you won't be thought well of. Maybe you will be shunned. And after all, you may have to live across from this person for, for a decade or more. It's hard. But the truth of the matter is, my friends, because of what Jesus has done, He has opened up the opportunity for salvation. And only God can overcome the unbelief of our neighbors. And this brings us to our second point from today. We have the responsibility to give them, our neighbors, the good news. But there's a little bit of pressure taken off of us with this second statement. Though we do have the responsibility to give our neighbors the good news, we can't save anyone, but God can and He will. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul is in Corinth experiencing persecution, Jesus appears to him. The Lord says to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And in context, what he's saying is, Though they haven't trusted me yet, they will. Because as we put this together with Acts chapter 13, verse 48, the Lord Jesus, in covenant with His Father, has appointed some to life. And we don't know who they are, but they will come to Him. How do we know this? Because of the Great Commission. Jesus says to His disciples before His ascension, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, and notice this last phrase, Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our neighbors must receive Christ by faith, and only God can overcome their unbelief. And He uses us to give them the good news. But we're not responsible for whether they believe or not. It takes a lot of the pressure off. And what takes the pressure off even more is that some of them actually will believe because God will save people. This means that, that in Lewis Center and Westerville and Worthington and Clintonville and Delaware and Marion and Prospect 
and Galena and Columbus and all over the place. God has people. Spurgeon one time, who believed very much that God was sovereign in rescuing the lost, preached a sermon that invited all of the hearers to come to faith in Jesus. And a well-meaning, we believe, person came up to him after the sermon and said, how can you invite people to, to come to Jesus indiscriminately, not knowing perhaps that some of them have not been appointed to life? He answered like this. He said, if I could go up and down the streets of London and lift people's shirt tails, which would get you thrown in jail today, right? And see a yellow stripe down people's backs and upon finding that yellow stripe, knowing that those were the people appointed to eternal life, I would run up and down the streets of London lifting people's shirt tails and preaching the gospel just to them. But because I don't know, I preach the gospel to all equally, believing that God will bring some to faith. And, and so that's our responsibility. Your neighbor to your left or your right or in front or behind, you do not know what God's intentions for them are eternally. If they reject the gospel, it will be upon them. For just like the Jews here in this passage, if people thrust it aside, if they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life, that is on them. But we will encounter people who need the good news, and all we have to do is open our mouths. Now that's hard, right? I know it is. But, but here's my, my final word to you for today. Would you trust Jesus in whom all authority and power has been invested? Will, will I, will, will we trust Jesus who promises to be with us to the end of the age? That even if we have to pay the ultimate price, which is so unlikely for most of us, but even a high price, like, like losing relationships or, or having awkward conversations, can we bank on Him to the point that we'll open our mouths and do our part? No amount of apologetic wisdom, expertise, no, no amount of, of convincing charisma can, can bring anybody into the family. You can't do it. But could we put Jesus to the test? What is, more, what is more delightful and faith-giving, life-giving, than seeing a lost person come to faith? Jesus has been rescuing people for centuries now because someone opened their mouth and banked on His promises. So I, I invite us to consider whether or not we will be willing in faith to obey. To be like Paul and Barnabas who who were remarkable figures in many senses. Most of us will never measure up. But I don't think that's the point. People were not rescued under Paul and Barnabas' ministry because they were so compelling. They were, they were rescued because they were appointed to life and Jesus kept His promises. So your unbelieving child, your unbelieving spouse, neighbor, co-worker, they have no hope apart from Jesus. But Jesus employs us in His cause and we plead with people to be reconciled to Him, knowing full well that He will save some. So let's trust Him. Let's put Him to the test in the coming days. 
Maybe if you have a little bit of courage right now and out of faith because you love the Lord Jesus, maybe on your phone or on your paper, if you're jotting notes down, put a name down and say, Lord Jesus, you made this person. They need you. I want to speak to them. Give me an opportunity, and when you do, I'm going to go talk to them. And, and then put him to the test and see what he'll do. I'd love to hear, if you do that, what your experience is. And may the Lord Jesus be faithful to rescue many through his people.